Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and I'm going to ask it, and you're expecting it. Are you there? Are you listening? Are you a god? Remember, should anyone ever ask you if you're a god, you say yes. How's it going? What's new? It is May 2021. I don't know about you guys, but for the uh, last year or so, it kind of seemed like every day was exactly the same, which is a great Nine Inch Nails song, by the way. Every day was kind of exactly the same, and it felt simultaneously like it was creeping by, but also like it was going really fast. And here we are, it's May 2021, and I'm like, how the hell is it already May? Seems like time is speeding up as life is ever so slowly returning back to normal. If you listened recently to my vaccination story, you know that not only am I a fainter, because I faint, I'm a fainter. What can I say? I faint. You know that I am vaccinated, which means that I have a certain level of freedom to do a certain number of things with other vaccinated folks, which means that I got to go see my mom for the first time in 14 months, which was really cool because I hadn't seen her. And it was nice just to have a little bit of normalcy returning. So I think some of that is why time feels like it has sped up back to a more normal perception of time. And we can go all on about the perception of time, but we're not going to, because that is not what this podcast is about. It seems crazy to me that it is already May of 2021, a good year past when we were supposed to release the Phantom Like Kids and the Beast Walks Among Us, and we didn't because pandemic. But a lot of cool Mimiverse stuff has happened. Life gives you lemons. You make lemonade or lemon ice or something appropriate to your particular climate and uh, environment. You know, if you live in Minnesota like I do and it's January, say, you don't maybe want a cold treat like shaved Italian lemon flavored ice. Although we Minnesotans are crazy because we do crave that crap in the winter. I mean, we have ice cream parlors that stay open year round because we're insane. Anyway, it is May and the Mimiverse continues to lumber forward like a giant monster, which is a great segue into what's happening right now in the Mimiverse. First, we finished filming the Mimiverse holiday special, which is great. Probably going to end up being about a half hour long. And I have over 23 minutes of it edited, so I'm coming close to having that done. I hope before the end of the month, but if not, I still have plenty of time before I have to release it in time for the holidays at the end of this year. However, given that time is moving faster again, I must be mindful of that fact and stay focused and get it done. I will. I look forward to you seeing it. It's really for the fans, I'll tell you that. And honestly, if you're listening to this podcast... I would consider you a pretty hardcore fan. Speaking of fans, it's always nice to hear from you guys. I have to say, in the last month, particularly ever since I released the episode with my vaccination story, I've gotten a lot of great messages from a lot of people, particularly about how much they enjoyed the vaccination story. And I wouldn't say I enjoyed creating the basis for the vaccination story because I had to get a shot. And I don't know if you're aware, but I am a fainter. And I faint. I don't like to faint. I'm a fainter. And everyone at that vaccine clinic knows it. Regardless, I did enjoy telling the story and it did get a lot of great 
reaction and a lot of messages from people letting me know how fun it was to listen to. And a couple people who said that hearing my story and hearing that I could do it, given all of the emotional distress it caused me, that if I could do it, they could do it too. So I feel like if nothing else, maybe I've done a little good in the world. So I want to thank every person that reached out to me to tell me how much they enjoyed the story. Just, I don't know, April seemed to be the month where I got all these great messages from people saying, keep doing what you're doing. I love the Mimiverse. Keep going. Keep doing this. And that was huge to me. Sometimes I need to hear that stuff. This can sometimes be a very isolating thing. And I've said this many times before. Making these movies, from my perspective, tends to be a little lonely. Cue the violins. And I don't mean that in like, I'm so lonely. Uh, it's more just, uh, and I don't know why I did that with a strange English accent. It's more just that I spend a lot of time in front of my computer by myself. So a lot of the work that goes into these outside of actually shooting the movies is, is just me by myself. And so it is always nice to hear that all the time and effort I've put into these things has affected people. Even if they're just like, hey, I love your movies. Thanks for making them. I really appreciate that. So... Thank you all for reaching out and being nice, and it means a lot. And in the last year, given everything that's happened, I think it's forced a lot of us, and me in particular, to take some stock in the things you've done and, and who you are and what you want and learned a little gratitude, a little humility. I'm a very humble person. I'm probably the most humble person in the world. In fact, I doubt you'll ever meet anyone who's more humble. No, just kidding. I'm just joking around because I'm very modest probably the most modest person in the world. Okay, I'll stop. But seriously, no, I've definitely had a chance to look at my life and who I am and evaluate the things that are good, that are, are worth keeping, the things that are great, that are worth pouring energy and time into, and even some of the things that are mediocre that maybe I don't need to worry about so much. Like since October, I've generally stayed away from social media particularly Facebook. With all the stuff that was happening in the world, with the election and just the constant sniping, I got sick of it. I was just tired of it. I realized I didn't care what a lot of people were saying and the fights, and it was just this constant, like, butting of heads, and I was sick of it. So I more or less dropped off the service. I still have it, and I still update the films of Christopher R. Mim and the Mimiverse group and all those things. Stuff that's relevant to fans of the movies and that kind of thing. But from a personal standpoint, I stayed away from it. And I've probably updated it like three or four times since October. So in six plus months. One of them was to tell people to join me on Instagram for my uh, themed dinner photos. There was something I started doing during the pandemic because I didn't even eat takeout or anything. I just decided I was going to cook for basically the entire year. And I did. And to keep it interesting, because I like to cook and I like to learn new recipes and try different techniques, I started doing themed dinners and posting them on Facebook every day. I got a lot of messages from people saying that they really enjoyed it simply because it was just something fun to look forward to every day. When I dropped off Facebook, that went away too. And, and I had people also contact me and be like, oh, I'm sad that you haven't been on Facebook because I haven't seen what you're eating. And it's so trivial. It really is. But it was... It's just a little piece of fun, a little piece of entertainment for everybody's day. And so I jumped on Facebook because I started an Instagram account called Mim Dinners of just my theme dinners. And it's just a picture of my dinner every night of the things I cook. So if you want to find me at Mim Dinners and follow my culinary exploits as well, feel free. But 
you really don't have to. But the point is, is that that was one of the few things I've put on Facebook since. I got off of Facebook, and I'll be honest, it's one of the best damn things I ever did. Because Facebook is a cesspool, and it sucks. And I've become somewhat evangelical about that fact. So if you're on Facebook, I encourage you to step away from it for like a month. And you'll see how much better your life feels. Because you stop comparing yourself to this fake version of everyone else's lives. You get away from the constant fights about politics and whatever else. But you also get away from a lot of toxic people, which is a good thing. I get that there are people out there that really need a lot of attention. And I'll be honest, I am a person who likes attention. So I'm not, I'm not saying I'm perfect because I am not. But being away from Facebook has been a huge plus. I find that I pay attention to my life more. I pay attention to my kids more. I just, I pay attention to what's happening in front of me more. And that's a good thing. I'm more present and being present is a good thing. I'm not saying you'd have to necessarily get rid of it completely, but you know, they design these things to be addictive. So if you even have a sliver of an addictive personality, you're probably on Facebook too much or Twitter or whatever. And it might be nice to rethink that. I've been sober for several decades now. I used to drink way too much and other stuff. We'll say that. And one day I quit and that was one of the best decisions I ever made. I don't talk about it a lot because I don't really want it to define me completely, but it is part of who I am, which I'm sure makes some of you think, my God, he's sober and he still makes these movies. What is wrong with him? The truth is these movies are awesome. And if you don't see that, why are you listening to my podcast? But anyway, I recognized early that I have an addictive personality and it's very hard to overcome an addictive personality, but you can do it. And what I found is pouring that energy of becoming addicted to things, pouring that into something good and creative is the best way to overcome that. And it's hard. This is kind of a weird tangent I'm on, but if you're struggling with addiction, drugs or alcohol or whatever, help is available, seek it out and know that it is possible to overcome it. However, and this is something I learned about myself is that just not being an alcoholic does not mean that you're suddenly not going to have an addictive personality. So I find that refocusing that energy of wanting to do that stuff into a hobby like making movies is a positive way to use that personality trait. That same thing that drives me to seek out drugs and alcohol is that same thing that you can wrestle back and say, you know what, I'm going to make movies. Maybe you want to be in a band. Maybe you want to learn an instrument. Maybe you want to paint. Maybe you just want to decorate your house. I don't know. The point is, is you can take that energy and put it somewhere else. It's the same thing, but way better because you're not also killing yourself in the process. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, that was just a little aside. If you're a person who is struggling with addiction issues, seek help. It's out there. You can find it. It's worth it because I turned all that energy into what I'm doing now. And now this is who I am and what I do. And I like this person a lot, who I am. Whatever your past may be, you can grow beyond it and become the person you want to be. It's in your hands. You don't have to let it control you. You just have to recognize it first. That is literally the first step. Admit the problem. Say, you know what? I do this too much and this is not good for me. This is bad. And then from there, 
you can step back, intellectualize it, and approach it in a way that can help you. And there are a lot of people out there who are going to be willing to help you. That's how it works. You can evolve beyond the person you used to be. You can leave the past in the past. Because honestly, if and when it resurfaces, you'll have a fresh set of eyes to look at it. And you can be realistic and realize that you're better off now without that. Because you are. And you will be. This took a turn. Anyway, hi, how's it going? How are things? I've been very busy this last month. Like I said, we finished shooting the Mimiverse holiday special and I'm actively editing it and really getting excited for it and cannot wait for you to see it later this year. You can still contribute to it and I encourage you to do so to get your name in the credits or what I was thinking would be fun is it will be out later this year, barring any sort of catastrophe. And of course, given the last year that we've had, it's possible, but still more unlikely than not. But still, knock on wood, that was me knocking on my wooden desk, you never know. Fingers crossed, everything should be fine. I'm encouraging folks to contribute and give the credit as a gift for this coming holiday season. It will be ready and in your hands before the major gift-giving holidays coming up later this year. Imagine, if you will... Say you have kids, or your dad, or who knows what, your grandkids, whatever. Imagine what a unique gift it would be to be like, aside from the socks and underwear I normally give you, or the gift cards to Starbucks, I decided this year to get you something wholly and completely unique. I got your name in the end credits of a holiday special, of a movie. And I'm sure they'll be slightly confused, but... Despite their confusion, you can then clear it all up by giving them a copy of it and saying, here, let's watch it. Then you can spend a little time with your loved one, hopefully because you're all vaccinated and this stupid goddamn coronavirus is gone, or at least manageable. You guys are, are together and you're, you can throw the disc in the Blu-ray player, or download it off the internet or whatever, and you can watch it. You can enjoy it, have some family time. And then in the end, when their name comes up, they'll go, oh my God, there it is. And that's what they'll say exactly like that. I hope if you're one of these people that actually gives it as a gift, you videotape that moment so that you can send it to me and be like, here, they said it. Oh my God, there it is. Just like that. And on top of that, all contributors will get a certificate that if you haven't gotten one of these before, it's this cool certificate I've done with every contributor credit, which is, you know, just a, a document sized, nicely printed thing that says that someone is recognized as a, as a contributor and I sign it and it's dated and the whole thing. That's the thing they could unwrap. You frame it and then you put like the Blu-ray or the DVD or whatever. If you're one of those people who likes physical media, put it in there and wrap the whole thing and they open that and they'll be like, this is weird. What is this? And then you watch it and, and they'll love you more than anyone else forever because you got them such a unique gift. Imagine that feeling of knowing, really picture it, knowing that you gave them the most unique gift when everyone else has given them gift cards and stuff they don't want, weird socks and candy canes. I don't know. Point is, it'd be amazing. And you can do this by going to SaintEuphoria.com and contributing to the Mimiverse Holiday Special. Or if you just want to think long term, you could also contribute to the new movie that we start shooting in less than a week. The Family Kids, in the day the Earth abruptly almost ended, begins principal photography within seven days 
of the recording of this. So that movie is totally happening. We just did another cast read through to make sure there wasn't anything in there that we needed to freshen up. You know, you make little small changes as you hear things said out loud or we noticed one little error I had made a couple times that we just were able to flip. I mean, that's the reason you do those things, the read throughs, but we're ready to go. We got our costumes. We're working on props. Some of the, the creatures that are being made for this. We're going, we're rolling, we're ready to do this and we're going to do it. And the weather should be nice. We're shooting outside and it's going to be like 60 and sunny, which for me is ideal. It's like my favorite weather in the world. Should also keep the bugs at bay. Fingers crossed because yikes, the bugs making the beast walks among us were awful. Damn mosquitoes. But it's a little early for mosquitoes and it's been cool. So I'm hoping that means that we can avoid some of that well, at least until we get deeper into the summer when it'll be awful because it always is, but still, still. So that starts coming up here in a week. So I'm crazy excited for that. And you should be too, because the Mimiverse continues to roll forward. And it is all because of people like you who contribute and keep it alive. And the people like you who have watched the movies and told people about it and shared it and helped keep the lights on during these trying times. We haven't quite dug out of the hole from 2020, but who has? We've kept it alive. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a win. I'm grateful for that. I'm happy that it's still alive and it's still going and we still got plans and we got other things happening. Sadly, I have to report that if you don't know already and you don't check SaintEuphoria.com or the, the social media stuff I still update, that which lurks in the dark is dead, at least in a coma and not necessarily expected to survive. If you remember, that which lurks in the dark was supposed to be the movie that came out in 2020. I wrote it in 2018 with the express understanding that I'd be shooting it in the spring of 2019 and releasing it in the spring of 2020. I had the cast all set and ready to go. We were doing pre-production. We we're getting everything together. And then we had some issues trying to get everybody on the same page as far as scheduling. And it just, it didn't come together. Sometimes these things happen. It can get difficult. The problem became it started pushing back too far. And I started getting to a point where I needed to start shooting something to keep my one movie a year thing alive, I had to get on it. And it was becoming clear that that which lurks in the dark was not going to happen, at least shooting wise in 2019. So that pushed me into a corner. And from that came the Phantom Lake Kids and the Beast Walks Among Us, which came together very quickly. And we were able to just bang it out. And it's a fun little blessing in disguise because it ends up being one of my favorite movies I've ever made, which of course brings into 2020 and, and all the crap that happened then, which made it even more heartbreaking that I have this movie that I love that's ready to go that I haven't been able to release yet. I mean, I guess I could have done it digitally and, you know, I've gotten a few emails and messages over the last year of like, where's my movie? It's like, it's in my computer and you'll get it when you get it. <laughs> anyway. I'm not annoyed by that at all. Can you tell? So we made The Beast Walks Among Us and we were ready to release it. And then everything fell apart and we had to push things aside. And the worst part is, is that we had finally worked it out with that which lurks in the dark and started shooting it and got probably just over a third of it in the can. And it all fell apart again, as did the release of The Beast Walks Among Us as a weird plus in all of this, we ended up with the Phantom Lake Kids and the Unseen Invasion, which 
I really enjoy. And I've gotten a lot of great reviews from people who have enjoyed it as well. So, you know, one step forward, two steps back, you know, it's just, you got to roll with it. You got to, you got to be flexible in these things. That which looks in the dark was shut down. Beast Walks Among Us is delayed, which I will say right now, it's coming out in September. I'm saying September. It may be early October if it is one of those things that it is safe enough to do a live premiere. And I'm honestly looking at alternatives to even a theater, like maybe even doing like an outdoor thing, like an outdoor movie, which would be really fun. The point is, is that I'm looking into ways to make sure we can do a live event. If it is just not safe or plausible to do so, I'm going to release it digitally, but it's coming out. The Beast Walks Among Us will be coming out this fall. Okay. So if you're excited, I appreciate your enthusiasm. I appreciate your excitement. I really, really do. And I'm, I'm, I'm just as excited to get it to you as people are to see it. Just know that it's coming September, October. Okay. We'll get there. We will. But because of the status of everything still happening in the world, and the still ongoing pandemic, it became pretty clear that that which lurks in the dark had to be shut down. Partially because I had all these folks who had contributed to it that were just sort of in limbo as a result. I'll tell you, I'm not one of those people that can take money from someone and then just be like, oh, well, life sucks, too bad, and then keep that money. If you give me money to make something and I don't make that something, I'm going to give it back to you. And so... I recently made the decision to shut down that which lurks in the dark for the foreseeable future completely so that it's not just sort of out there hanging out over everybody's heads like, what happened to that movie? It's off the schedule. And I contacted everybody who contributed. And if if you contributed, but you haven't heard from me, there's a good chance my email got lost. Or I know that sometimes the only email I have for some people is the email certain folks use for PayPal, which they don't always check. So if you have not heard from me, but you contributed, get a hold of me if you can. Find me at sainteuphoria.com. If you go to the little contact page, I get all that stuff. So just contact me there. We'll work it out been offering refunds and and if you would rather just roll that into the projects we're doing now that's an option a lot of folks have taken that option and i appreciate all of you who have that has helped a lot and i know that a lot of people out there like yourself who may have contributed do so because they simply want to see more mimiverse stuff not because they're super excited about any one project but the entirety of all projects and so a lot of folks have been really cool about that and just be like, yeah, put it in the next one and, and we'll go from there. I've had a couple of people ask for refunds for whatever reason. And the reality is if you need money or if you want your money back, I will give it to you. It's your money. I'm not going to steal your money. If you gave me money to make a movie and I'm not making that movie, you have the option of getting your money back. I have contributed to Kickstarter campaigns and Indiegogo campaigns and they never came to fruition and I never saw my money back. It was just like, oh, well, I'll just pocket the money. And I don't know whatever happened to that money. I don't, I don't know what happened to those people. I know that sometimes things happen, but I've always gone into the crowdfunding game with the mindset that if I take your money, I'm going to use it toward the thing I say I am. And if I don't do it, you'll get it back. So if you want your money back, let me know. If you want me to put it somewhere else, let me know. If you don't care, I guess never contact me back and I'll just put it into the stuff that I'm working on now, which is exactly where it's going. But just know that that is now mostly dead. Mostly dead. I say mostly dead because it's a Princess Bride reference, but also because I'm not saying I won't go back to it. I still love the script. I still think it's hilarious. 
and I would like to make it someday, but it's just not safe right now. And by the time I would be able to get back to it, be next year at the earliest, at the absolute earliest would be next year. And I would have to start over from scratch. None of the footage would match. And I don't even know if I can get all the same actors and locations. And it's just, we'd have to start over. And honestly, given the curse that movie has seemed to be under since the beginning, I just don't want to deal with it right now. I'd rather make movies that I know I can make, that I can get done. And so that's what I'm doing. So that's just, it's back in the queue. Eventually, I hope to get back to it. We'll see. I have a million ideas. And of course, I just, I have no idea what the future holds. So who knows what's coming up? Who knows what's next? I mean, I have a really good idea what I'm going to do next after this family kids movie but i'm not saying anything yet but it's an old idea that's been floating around for a long time but i think it's finally time to do it because it's still one of my favorite ideas and it's ridiculous and fun and cinematically speaking that's where i'm at right now i want to do fun ridiculous funny light stuff just given the darkness of the last year and a half at this point i don't need to add any more darkness to an already dark world i want to add some levity and happiness and so that's where my plans are right now rest in peace that which lurks in the dark if you contributed and you haven't heard from me something got lost in translation contact me through sayeuphoria.com contribute to the things that are moving forward like the memoverse holiday special which is almost done so there's a limited period of time there where you can actually contribute and the family kids in the day the earth abruptly almost ended which we begin shooting in a week it's gonna be so cool so that's what's going on in the memoverse this month we have another episode of atomic tales at the end of this episode so uh you should definitely stick around to check that out but i've decided that i'm adding a new section to the audio cast and it will be an ongoing thing the new section is going to be called an oral history of the Mimiverse. I got so much positive feedback about my story about my vaccination that I realized that one of the things I need to do to keep the audio cast interesting for folks is probably tell more stories. I originally started this podcast as an offshoot of the Mimiverse Bonfire podcast because it was becoming clear that the Mimiverse Bonfire podcast was becoming bogged down with being able to strike a balance between what's going on in the Mimiverse and talking to the guests. And so some of the episodes ended up becoming really, really long. Sometimes it'd be like an hour or so before we even got to the guest. Part of that is because I don't know how to shut up, but also I just like to tell stories and talk, particularly about my movies. And so I started doing the Mimiverse monthly audio cast as a way to sort of yank the what's going on in the Mimiverse part of the Bonfire podcast out and create something separate. So if you're a person who really wants to know what's going on in the Mimiverse, you can listen to the Mimiverse monthly. But if you just want to hear stories of Catherine Hansen talking about making Destination Outer Space, you can do that at the Mimiverse Bonfire podcast. Now, sadly, the Mimiverse Bonfire podcast is no more and hasn't been for a long time. And actually, what's kind of interesting is I realized that given that this is episode like 79 of the Mimiverse Monthly, 
We have now surpassed the number of numbered episodes of the Bonfire Podcast. So that's kind of weird. But the Bonfire Podcast still had more episodes because they were longer and we had a bunch of supplemental ones we did at events and stuff. So there's still more Bonfire Podcasts than there is of the Mimiverse Monthly, but we only actually made like 76 or 77 episodes of Bonfire Podcast, technically. But then when you add in all the extra episodes we put out there, it's still more. That just sort of gives you an idea of how many episodes of this I've been doing. And what I noticed is that the episodes that get the most reaction are the ones that involve me telling a story about something. One time I literally told a ridiculous over-the-top story about why someone should contribute. And I just made up this whole meandering thing about the reaction one would get from contributing in someone else's name. And that got one of the best reactions of any of them before the vaccination story, which has gotten by far the best reaction. And so as a result, I realized that I should probably tell some more stories. And so I'm going to do this new thing called the oral history of the Mimiverse. And the reasons why I want to do this is twofold. One, to tell more stories. But two, I've been told by a lot of people that they would love to read a book about the Mimiverse and its origins and the stories of the things that I've experienced and the making of the movies and, and everything. The story of where it began and how it got to where it is now. I realize that I am not a person who likes to sit down and type out that much information. I don't mind writing scripts because I can move quickly on those and there's a lot less detail that goes into those because it's meant for the visual medium. To me, a script is an outline from which you then build the world, right? Whereas in a book, you have to talk about everything and describe everything and go on and on about everything. And sitting there and typing it out for me is difficult. I really can't do it. At least not stream of consciousness I need to work from a, a solid outline. And I realized that I really like to talk and can do that at length without problem. I realized I had the perfect way to, in essence, create a living document about the history of the Mimiverse by telling all the stories right here. And then once I have them all, I could go back and, and more or less like type them up and add some extra flair along the way. Or maybe if I never get around to it, someone else could do it. And now they have all this stuff as a resource from which to build a print version of the history. So I thought it'd be the best way to go is to start doing this, this new section. So without further ado, here it is. The very beginnings of the oral history of the Mimiverse. Episode one, the beginning, the real beginning. I'm often asked how and why the Mimiverse started and why I decided to make a 1950s-style monster movie called The Monster of Phantom Lake. The real reason is it's an interesting confluence of different events, as I guess everything is in life. I am a person who has always loved the movies. I love going to the movies. I still love going to the movies, and I miss it greatly. I love going to the drive-in. I have a lot of great memories of growing up going to the drive-in. 
My parents lived in Minneapolis and in Edina, Minnesota, which is a suburb not too far from where my mom's house was. There was a drive-in there that we would go to often in the summer, and it had a couple screens, and we'd go to my mom's old Delta 88, and uh, we'd see whatever was out. And this was the late 70s, early 80s. My absolute first memory ever is seeing Star Wars, the original Star Wars, at a drive-in in 19, I think it was 1978, when it was coming around again. I was born in 1976. I was only a year or two old. And I remember getting out of the car because my older brother had to go to the bathroom. My dad was going to take him. And I distinctly remember standing by my dad, who was six foot one, and I'm tiny, holding on to just his finger. My hand was so small, he just held on to just his, just his finger. And my brother getting out of the car and my dad leaning in to tell my mom something inside. And my younger brother isn't even born yet because he's born in 79. And I looked up at the screen at the moment when Obi-Wan Kenobi is fighting Darth Vader on the Death Star, that lightsaber fight. And I remember the flashing lightsabers and that's it. That's the end of the memory. I was looking up at the screen and seeing the duel. So my memories of the drive-in, my memories of going to the movies go back literally as far as I can remember. So the movies have kind of been in my blood and I've always wanted to make a movie. My dad's older brother lived in Mexico. He was a scientist and he went from the University of Minnesota as an entomologist and he worked down in Mexico working on corn. His whole thing was corn and bugs and the bugs that eat corn and trying to improve crop yields and stuff and pesticides and, and beneficial, but I mean, it was just dry scientific stuff. And because he and his wife lived in Mexico and had no kids, they had some money. And so when they would come and visit, they always seemed to have cool stuff. And one time, for some reason, they came to our house and they would stay for a weekend or something. And my aunt had a, a video camera and this is in the eighties. So it was like one of those shoulder mounted bazooka cam VHS deals. She let me play with it. She's like, just don't break it. And I spent the entire weekend filming everything in my backyard as if it were a movie, just stupid crap. And I really wish I could find that tape. It's long, long gone. But I remember distinctly doing that and loving every second of it because even though I was just shooting my cat sitting outside or bees on raspberry bushes, I felt like a filmmaker and I loved it. The, the feeling of it. And as a kid, that was the only chance I ever got at being able to play with a video camera one time for real until I was much older. I still remember it because I thought it seemed so fun and cool. I spent all this time in my backyard pretending to be Steven Spielberg and I had a great time and it stuck with me. A lot of my favorite memories growing up tended to be around watching movies with friends, going to the movies, seeing Ghostbusters. There's a particular memory about why I like Ghostbusters so much beyond the fact that it's a fantastic movie. I mean, it's a really an amazing movie. When I was a kid, my dad would often randomly take us to movies, my brothers and I. Even one time, my dad pulled my brother and I out of school to go see Return of the Jedi. And I remember telling my teacher that I was leaving early that day. And she's like, why? And I said, because my dad's taking me to see Return of the Jedi. And I remember her saying, oh man, I wish I could go. I'm so jealous. And even if she was just being nice, 
it made me think, how cool am I to go see a movie instead of going to school? It's the first grade. So I was really excited. But yeah, my dad would randomly take us to movies. And one time, he took us to go see Ghostbusters. This is 1984. Pretty sure it was just my older brother and I, because my younger brother was only five at the time. And I'm pretty sure my mom stayed home with my younger brother. And that's why it was just my older brother and I and my dad. And we loved the movie. We really did. I mean, my dad really liked it. And he liked it so much. We went home afterwards, and he was telling my mom all about it. And he said, we should go see it. You got to see it. It's so funny. You'll love it. She's like, okay. So that weekend, we went to go see it, all five of us. I distinctly remember there was a part in the movie. And admittedly, my relationship with my mother is complex. But that is not what this is about. But it figures into this. My mom and I have not always gotten along very well, partially because our personalities are rather similar and we butt heads as a result. We went to see Ghostbusters. This is the second time I've seen this. This is the first time I've ever seen a movie twice in a theater, which was exciting at the time because I was seven, eight years old. And I sat next to my mom. And I remember this because at one point in the movie, when Dana opens the fridge and the, the Zool dog says, Zool, it startled me. And it startled my mom at the same time. So we both jumped because I'm eight. And I remember distinctly that because we both jumped, we looked at each other and laughed and shared like a moment. So much so that that still sticks with me. And I'm 45 years old now. So we're talking almost 40 years ago. That moment still sticks with me because at that moment, I felt very close to my mom. And why? Because of the movies. So I've always been kind of weirdly obsessed with the movies, and I've analyzed and overanalyzed why. Besides the fact that I just love them. I love getting lost in a good film. I love going to the movie theater, shutting out the outside world, and being taken to crazy places. To places you would never go, to other planets, to wherever. I love that. I've always loved that. So I've always been weirdly interested in making my own film. But that's not exactly how my life went. When I became a teenager, I discovered the raw power of being a drummer in a band and how it could help you get girls. And so I started playing drums in a bunch of really awful bands in the early 90s when I was 14. And luckily, my dad was super cool, and he went out and bought me the cheapest drum set he could find, which was an absolute piece of crap. But I loved that thing. It was beat up. It was old and I painted it blue and I fixed it up as best I could, as best I knew how. And I learned how to play it with my friends. And we created a couple bands and we used to throw parties in my basement and my parents were cool enough to let us. We had all these people come and file into my basement, listen to us destroy Smells Like Teen Spirit. We never played it right, but it never mattered. And yes, it got me girls. And for a 15 year old kid, that's all that mattered. So my desire to make movies kind of fell by the wayside because I had a new goal. I wanted to be a rock star. Now, in the process of this, I learned about recording music. I've always liked the technical stuff. The other thing I always liked doing was programming my computers. As a nine-year-old kid, I taught myself how to program my Apple II because I'm not athletic, but I'm pretty good at math. And programming always seemed like fun because I also liked video games a lot. And I always just wanted to make my own video game. Of course, back then, I had no idea how to make a video game. But I did make a fake horse racing simulator that I would then invite the local kids over to bet on. And the house always wins. Let's just say that. Ahem. 
So I've always been technically minded as well. And the idea of recording music always appealed to me, partially because I loved the idea of being able to craft a song, record it, add to it, take away from it, pull it apart, re-record it, do all these things. And then in the end, you have yourself a finished song. It's done. It exists as is, as that, forever. And there's something about that, that permanence there that I liked. I liked being able to focus on one thing. And in the end, you have a finished product. I was never one for live performance. I tend to get a little nervous. I was worried that I was going to mess things up, and I often did. I was never a great drummer. I could keep the beat. I could play. I could keep time. But live performance to me was never what it was about. It was always about the songwriting and committing those songs to physical media, to cassette tape, to CD, to whatever. It was about creating a song, putting it together, recording it, and using the recording process to enhance it. I've always loved the Beatles. My dad loved the Beatles. I love the Beatles as sort of a secondhand Beatles fan, and I've passed that on to my kids. But the Beatles are amazing. But one of the things about the Beatles that's extra amazing is all the stuff they did in the recording studio. And to me, that just enhances the song. And it's so hard then to re recreate some of that stuff live. And so to me, that perfection of reaching that point was what I liked about it. It was the same reason why I like movies more than I like theater. The wild element of theater and live performance music or whatever always kind of, I'd say it wrecks it for me, but it's just like I don't find that thrilling in the way that seeing a movie and you see the time and effort put into it and you get an experience of seeing it for the first time, right? That experience is what sticks. That's the baseline. And from there, you sort of grow. You either hate it, you love it, whatever. It's from that point forward, that first time of seeing something is going to pretty much color your enjoyment of that thing forever because it's always the same. And when you can go back you know what to expect. It's going to be this way, but a really good movie or a really good song, you find something later where you're like, holy crap, I never noticed that. But you at least have that baseline. If I go see a performance of a play, say Oklahoma, it's fine. The base of it is the same more or less because it's Oklahoma, right? But the version of it is going to be different every time based on the actors, based on the, the skill of the people putting it on, where it's being put on, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, I really do prefer that sort of, this is it. Ghostbusters, for instance, it's the same every time. And I find comfort in that. I really do. And so to me, learning how to record music and being interested in recording music was an extension of that same thing that came from the movies. And so I got very much interested in learning to record music. And I became the guy who would record all the demos for my friends, right? We'd rent a four track from a local music place, a four track recorder, I should say, if you're not sure what a four track is. It was literally a, a small recording studio that consisted of four tracks and you would record onto a cassette tape. Four track recorders are difficult to get something that sounds good, but it would at least allow you to multi-track your, say, three-piece band. Because you put all the drums on one track, the guitar and the bass, and then the vocals, and there's your four tracks. Or you get deeper into the process, and there are ways to 
add tracks by recording the drums, say, to three tracks, and then you mix them down onto the remaining track and then add other tracks on top of that. And you sort of bounce things around and you sort of mix as you go. It's a pain in the butt. Like I said, nothing ever really sounds that great, but I loved the process of it. And so to me, it was always like in all my bands, I was always like, we got to write songs so we can record them so we can write more songs to record those. And eventually, you know, it was just this, like, I want to put out lots of stuff. I don't want to play shows, although we had to, I mean, you have to, we usually just threw parties and had people over to our house. And since I was the drummer, that meant coming to my house. So during high school, when I mostly skipped high school, I learned how to record music in a very rudimentary way. But I became somewhat fascinated with the process and decided that when I finished high school, which I barely did, which was really stupid because I just didn't apply myself. And I really didn't. I skipped a lot and I was doing really dumb stuff. I mentioned earlier in this episode about my uh, drug and alcohol problems. Well, most of them were in my teens and I focused my talents in the wrong places. I never really went to school. I should have, but I skipped a lot. And I'm not recommending anybody do this. Don't do it. Stay in school, kids. But I did it. And I spent a lot of time driving around with my friends and going to small town diners and eating patty melts and ham and cheese sandwiches and talking about what we're going to do when we're all rock stars. Or we'd go to our friends' houses and we'd play music. And I'd record a lot of it. But I decided when I finished high school that I was going to go to a local tech college called Hennepin Tech, which had an audio recording program. It was a two-year program that will teach you everything you need to know to record audio professionally. To me, that was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to go there and do that. And I did it. As soon as I actually finished high school, which I did, thankfully, I enrolled and went. While I was there, I realized that I didn't want to do this professionally. Also, I was cleaning up myself and my life at that time, and I had a lot of issues focusing. But I did finish Sure, I took a two-year program and made it into a three-year program, but I did finish. When I was done, however, I had no interest in doing it, particularly professionally. But during my studies, there were several classes that were specific to audio for video. And those classes interested me the most. And those classes are the ones in which I excelled. We had a project in the audio for video class where they gave you a piece of video with no sound. It was like a weird animation. And the project you had was to take this video and add a soundtrack. So you had to do all the sound effects and the music and everything. I really threw myself into it. I was really into this particular project. And you could use anything. You either had to do live sound effects where you folded everything or you, you, you had a keyboard. You could do synth, whatever. And I did everything including writing the music and everything. I didn't use any canned music or anything. The only really good grade I got was in that project. And my teacher, my instructor, pulled me aside and said, this is probably what you should be doing. You're really good at this. So I kind of took that as a sign. Also, one of the things you had to do to graduate is you had to do internships. And one of the internships I did was at a Public access station. Now, for those of you who don't know, public access used to be a thing where they'd have these TV stations that were run basically by the public and for the public. And you could go in and you could film a show or do whatever you wanted, pretty much. And they'd put it on air. As long as it was acceptable by FCC standards, you could do it. And so some friends and I 
decided to create our own little internship where we went there and we produced a bunch of stuff, a bunch of weird shorts and comedy sketches and just, you know, I never really wrote any of it. I was just there for the technical end. I was the director, basically. I was the editor and I really, really enjoyed the editing part. And that's all I really wanted to do. But these guys always wanted to put me on camera because they needed people. And I wasn't that interested in that part of it. I was more interested in the behind the scenes stuff. I, I wanted to direct. I wanted to run the cameras. I wanted to edit. And so I got to do that in spades for these guys who were doing all this stuff. And I got the credit I needed and, and I, f I finished college. But while I was doing that, I realized that the audio recording part was cool, but it was really just a piece of what I wanted to do. I wanted the technical know-how of how to record audio, but I was really interested in creating movies and TV. And so that did a lot toward teaching me some of the basics of multi-camera stuff and how to shoot things and how to edit things more than anything else was editing video and mixing it all together and making something. That was sort of a, a hands-on education that I learned much like I did with programming, much like I did with recording music in high school. I learned by just doing it myself because that internship really wasn't an internship. It was just us spending time screwing around at a public access station to get college credit. And I just was there to figure out how. And after I finished that, nothing ever came of it. I still continued to play drums in a few bands that just never went anywhere. And I started writing my own music. And a lot of it is terrible. <laughs> Most of it is terrible. But I started writing everything myself and learning how to sequence music using an old program called Acid Music, which was a sequencing program. This is the late 90s, so desktop computing is starting to come of age, and you have the ability to do some pretty cool stuff. So I started learning how to write music and sequence it and, and record it all in my bedroom using this program, Acid Music. I ended up going back to school again to get a... 12-month certificate in computer programming because, again, this was something I sort of already knew how to do, but I needed I needed to figure out a way to, to get a career in something I could see myself doing to make money. And so I got this certificate in computer programming. I ended up being number one in my class because, again, I already had a, a really good working knowledge of how programming works and what it is. And so I really just needed a piece of paper saying I knew that. So I just breezed through all my courses. And in fact, at one point, one of my favorite memories, and I know this is a long way around, but again, it's an oral history of how we get from point A to point B. I was in a class for the Java programming language, and we had to basically program a picture of a door. That was it. That was, that was the assignment. And this was within the, I think the first two weeks of class and the instructor it was one of my favorite instructors was a man from africa his name was Guy, and he was hilarious and he was always smiling and i loved that about him because he was always just people would ask him these inane questions and he would just give the biggest smile and he'd give the answer and there was just something so nice about him he was awesome he wasn't much older than most of us either i mean he was probably only like 30 you know most of the kids were 18 19 i was uh, 24 at the time he gave us this project, draw a door. That's all I want. Draw a rectangle, any color you want. Little circle, that's a doorknob. 
put it roughly where a doorknob would be. That was the entire project. Now me, Mr. Overachiever, and already being somewhat comfortable with all this, went ahead and decided, I'm not just going to draw a door. A lot of people were struggling with it. I mean, these were all concepts that they weren't used to, but this is something I knew. So I, I did my program and I embellished quite a bit and uh, I called Guy over. I don't remember his last name because I, I don't remember him even telling us. I think it was just, he was Guy. And I called him over and I said, I think I'm done. And he's like, oh, let me see. And I ran the program and he's like, oh, good job. And I'm like, wait, 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 click on the doorknob. He's like, what do you mean click on the doorknob? I'm like, put the mouse, put it on the doorknob and click on it. He's like, why? I'm like, just do it. So he does it. The door opens. It just swings open. I animated the door opening. And he laughed and he said, you don't need to come to class anymore. And I was like, what? He's like, you passed. You get this. There's not much more I'm going to teach you. you. You're good. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. It was two weeks into the course. That said, one of the things I really did try to do in that program was to get perfect attendance because I'd never done that before in my life. And I got a little ambitious with this because I'd finally cleaned up my life. Things were going well. I, I, I wanted to do well. So I was like, well, I'm still going to come to class. I said, I want to get perfect attendance because it was just, it was important to me. It's like the, the one movie a year thing. It's just something I wanted. He's like, okay, well, you want to help me teach? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> so I became his assistant, but I got an instant A. This happened another time. I was in another class for a, a programming language called RPG, uh, which is an old language that was the language of mainframes from back in the day. So it used to be done on punch cards, like old school punch cards. And it was mostly for data retrieval, database management, that kind of stuff. Store a bunch of information, be able to retrieve it quickly and organize it in interesting ways. It was very basic what they were teaching you, but it was still in use. And I think it might still be in use. So it was important to learn. Obviously, we didn't use punch cards anymore, but it was still kind of similar, even using it on a, a modern computer, it was still kind of similar the way you would enter it uh, into the compiler and all this stuff, right? And in fact, it may not even be a compiled language. It may be a, a interpreted language, but that is not important to this. Point is, is that the concepts of it were already stuff I understood. And so I decided to use my class time to see what I could do with it. And what I ended up doing is I wrote a program to create a text adventure. So it was like a mini Zork. If you know what Zork is, it was basically a mini Zork where you're walking through a house and you got to find your way out or I don't even remember what it is. I don't, I don't think I have a copy of it anymore. It's too bad. But I created this text adventure, which is more advanced than most people would ever attempt in a beginning RPG class. The teacher from that class was a guy from Belgium. And he was very nice. And when I finished this program and had it up and running and, and all the guys who sat around me, like I had them all play it, you know, when they were supposed to be paying attention, here I am like, hey, play this game, dude. I called him over and I was like, hey, I want to show you something I, I created. I want your opinion on it. And he came over and he he, uh, he took a look and he's like, what is this? I'm like, it's just something I was working on for fun because I was always getting my stuff done. So he knew I was getting my stuff done. He looks at it and he's like, is this a game? And I'm like, yep. And so he sat down and he played it. And he turns to me and says the exact same thing. You don't have to come to class anymore. You got an A. And I said, but I'm going to. And I did. And I also started helping him out as a teacher's assistant. So those are my 
favorite stories of getting this 12-month certificate. And, and all of this plays into how and why I started making movies. All of this is, is part of the grander story, right? And that's what movies are. They're stories. And you have to get from point A to point B. This is the backstory. So I finished school, and literally a month before, my father had died. In 1999, he was diagnosed with cancer, a form of stomach cancer called signet ring cell adenocarcinoma, which is a very awful form of cancer because it tends to go undetected for a long period of time. And in fact, it doesn't tend to metastasize. All cancers eventually can and will, if not taken care of. But this one tends to take years. The problem is when it does is when it's caught and it's always almost always too late i learned recently that the type of cancer he had is one of the least common cancers in the world and is only weirdly almost common in asia given that my dad is polish and german who knows but he developed it and it was only caught after he ended up in the hospital with a bout of pancreatitis which is very painful and very unpleasant. But he ended up there. And in the course of them trying to figure out why, they found the cancer. And it was in the lining of his stomach. And it was very hard for them to find. And by the time they found it, it was basically too late. It had already moved into lymph nodes and eventually into his lungs, where a year later, he was gone. Almost exactly a year later from the day he was told he had cancer. And he told me this story where he said, he asked the doctor when they said, this is what it is. He asked, what are the options? And they said, well, here's the protocol we're going with. And here's what we think we're going to do. If this doesn't work, we'll do this, we'll do this. And my dad, being my dad, said, well, what if I do nothing? How long do I have? Because he's like me. He was like me. He didn't like medical stuff. He asked, what if I do nothing? They said, you'll be dead within a year. And he still was, even when they did stuff. It was that bad. It was 2000, 20 years, and we're almost coming up on the 21st year. He was basically never expected to survive because this form of it, it was so bad and so late. My mom and I have talked about this and we, we look back and my wife and I have talked about this because she knew him around the time when he was sick and before he was diagnosed. We realized that even in 1996, he started having stomach problems. And he chalked it up to, as he said, drinking too much and eating crappy foods. Because he was getting this thing where he was getting really bad heartburn. To the point, if he ate too much, he would throw up. If this is happening to you, go get checked out. Because the truth is, he started eating less and he started losing weight, which is often a symptom of having cancer. He chalked up the losing weight to the fact that he just wasn't eating quite as much as he was. The truth is, my dad liked beer. He drank beer. Beer is high in calories. Regardless of eating less, he was still eating more than he should have. He was drinking beer, which is a lot of empty calories. So his weight shouldn't have been dropping the way it was. But as far as he understood it, as far as we understood it, he was basically on a diet. And so he was already starting to, quote unquote, inexplicably lose weight for a good five years before they found it. And then once they did, it was too late because it had metastasized, even though it was pretty slow growing. And when they finally did find it, they removed 
two-thirds of his stomach and part of his intestines, and they finally saw the tumor. The doctor described it as looking like a hand. It had all these tendrils and fingers coming out of it. So it was bad. May 29th, 2000, he died. And I was there. And it's one of those things you don't forget, watching your father take his last breath. You don't forget that. And ever since that day, I still think about it often. I was only 24 at the time, so that kind of messed me up. And honestly, even if it happened now, it would mess me up. It'd mess anybody up. It's not something I think anybody really gets over. So he passed away, and he was only 51. He was going to turn 52 that year. He was 51. I'm 45, so I'm six years away from that same age he was when he died. That's been fun. That's been messing with me a little bit. But after he was gone, life kind of went on. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing about it, right? People die, and the rest of us have to keep on living. I think when that happened, I started to feel like I needed to do something to make sure that I lived forever. And I knew, intellectually speaking, that no one lives forever. But my great fear, which I think springs directly from that, was that no one would remember me or anything I did once I was gone. And so I started getting a little bit weirdly obsessed with immortality. And I realized that was linked directly to my feelings about recording music and movies, is that there is a permanence to a certain extent, to those. Because it isn't just one performance that's just a memory when it's over. It's something that's created and exists from that point forward, as is, as it was when you created it. And I realized that at that moment, my music and, and interest in movie making was a form of immortality. It would be a disservice to not mention that when I was in high school, I befriended Mike Mason, who you all know as Michael Kaiser, not the Michael Kaiser, but the Lobo Michael Kaiser from the Monster Phantom Lake and Dr. Frazier from It Came From Their World. He was a friend of mine. He played in a bunch of bands I was in. Now, because I was friends with Mike, I met Josh Craig, who you all know as Professor Jackson. I met him in our German class because we all took German class together. And Josh and I became friends in high school, but we weren't close because I was much closer to my pot smoking friends, my grunge buddies, my musician friends who skipped school a lot and stole wine from my dad's cellar. <laughs> my dad used to make wine. We called it Mim wine. It was fruity and tasty and got you drunk. And that's why we stole it. And my dad made a lot of it. And so he never noticed. At least if he did, he never said anything. So anyway, I hung out with those guys in high school. But once I decided to quit drinking and being an idiot, Josh, who was much more straight-laced and just a much more responsible kid, Josh and I became close because one of the things I had to do to get away from my stupidity is I had to distance myself from my other friends to be able to get away from it so I wouldn't be tempted to keep doing it. And so I became really close to Josh. And we would spend time hanging out and we'd hit the local lakes. Josh loved to uh, camp he was very close to his family in a way that I wasn't. And he was just a good guy, you know, and something I aspired to be. I wanted to be a better person. I didn't want to be the idiot who was always getting stoned. I wanted to be with the guy who had his shit together. And that was Josh. 
And so we hung out and we got close and we both like nerdy stuff. You know, we like Star Trek. We like Star Wars. We like sci-fi. We were, we were geeks together and we would hit the local lakes and we'd go canoeing, which I weirdly enjoyed because when I was a kid, I got into a boating accident where I was on a paddle boat of all things that flipped over with me on it. And I ended up pinned underneath it and I almost drowned. Sure. Doesn't help my fear of water. <laughs> Actually, it is my fear of water it was from that. I survived, obviously. So I was always nervous about boats and I'm not a huge fan of them, but Josh encouraged me to go canoeing with them one time. And I realized that I kind of like canoeing because there's a certain level of control in it. It's that illusion of control of like, well, at least I'm paddling. And he was always really nice in making sure that we didn't go too far into the middle of some of these lakes because he knew I'd panic. I get very anxious about it because I was like, uh, this is too deep. I'm going to drown. I know how to swim well enough that if I felt like we were close enough to shore that I was like, ah, I could swim and make it, then I was comfortable. And he was really cool about that. So we go spend our summer days canoeing and talking and coming up with all these ideas. And here's the thing, and this figures into a lot of it. Josh went to college for theater. He was an actor. He loved the theater. I was always very interested in movies and, and making a movie. And I talked about it even then about how I'd love to make a movie. And I had all these ideas for movies that I'd love to make. And I would always bounce them off him and, and we'd make up goofy things like uh, the canoe cops, for instance. And I've always told this story is that the canoe cops came out of he and I canoeing the local lakes. There are park police who troll around in little motorboats for people who are being idiots on the lakes. I don't remember how it came up, but we, we thought it'd be hilarious if these park police were actually in canoes so they'd have to chase people by paddling, which of course is a lot of work and you don't go very fast. And it was just, it's stupid. It's a, it's a ridiculous idea, but it was so funny to us. And we created these characters of Sven and Gustav, you know, they're super Minnesotan and you know, they're, they're the canoe cops. So that was a, a concept that had been sort of floating around as something he and I just kind of came up with jokingly. So I became pretty close with Josh and I was constantly bouncing ideas off Josh for movies I'd love to make. And I just never did it. I never wrote any scripts. I never did anything. So I became kind of known as the guy who had a million ideas, but never did anything with them. And then my dad dies and I'm rightfully distraught. Josh was my best friend at the time. And this is what's sad about looking back on the fact that he and I aren't friends anymore is that we were really close and he was there for me. Being able to just go hang out with him and go hit the lakes and, you know, and neither of us were married at the time and, and didn't have any kids. And so, you know, he was my bud. He was my, 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 my bro. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But then after my dad died, my whole life was kind of thrown into a upheaval because I feel like that was the moment when I grew up. I feel like when you're a kid and you're a teenager in particular, you think you're invincible, right? You think nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. Then when you're finally slapped in the face with your own mortality is when you truly let go of childhood. And some people, it just never comes, you know, some people just never grow up. But for me, losing my dad, it really hit me that life is short. You only have so much time to prove to anybody that you ever existed. And that was kind of the weird way I looked at it. And so I started scheming all these thoughts of like, I need to write the world's greatest album or, or make a movie. And I had all these ideas and I feel like in the grief I became very creative, but dealing with all that grief made it very hard to actually produce anything. 
And I think that's part of what's been happening with a lot of people in the last year and a half. There's just a lot of grief and sadness and stress. It's easy to come up with ideas because your mind's sort of working at a, a mile a minute, but at the same time, you're, you're numb in a lot of ways. And so you don't have the energy or the drive to actually do anything. It's just so hard. Life is crappy <laughs> and you're confronted by it. And sometimes it's just easier to watch TV or spend time on Facebook, which you shouldn't do. <laughs> I realize this is a really long story to get to the point where I decide to make the monster in Phantom Lake, but that's all the pieces you have up till now. So in that roughly the four, five year period from when my father dies to when I finally start writing the monster of Phantom Lake, I got married to uh, Stephanie and my first child was born, Elliot, who is now 18 years old, who you know as Danny Johnson. A lot of things changed. Again, like I said, I feel like when my dad died, I grew up and decided it was time to grow up. I feel like I did. And I did a lot of the things that people do when they quote unquote grow up. I got married, ended up moving into a house. I have a mortgage, you know, all these things, right? I married a woman who is a few years older than me. And she already had two kids from her previous marriage, Michael Kaiser and Elizabeth Kaiser, who you know. Michael Kaiser, of course, is the monster and Deputy Hayes. You know Liz from Terror from Beneath the Earth and Cave Women on Mars. I mean, you, you know them. They've been a part of the Mimiverse since the beginning. Michael and Liz were both athletic kids. They're close to their dad. He's still around. Had a cordial relationship, 50-50 custody, the whole thing. It was cool. It worked. And then in 2004, Liz started having pains in her right knee and they kept getting worse and worse and worse. She was playing volleyball at the time and everyone thought, oh, it's a sports injury. She should rest it and ice it, but it wasn't helping. It wasn't getting better. She was 13 at the time. And we started to notice that there was a small bump on her knee and it was a little discolored. And it was like, something is off. Something is wrong. And so Steph and her ex-husband, took Liz in and they saw something, which then turned into a biopsy, which then turned into osteosarcoma, which is a primary bone tumor. So this is four years after my dad died. I got married, ended up with two stepkids, and now one of them has cancer. Needless to say, it definitely threw us all for a loop. I started to feel like I was cursed. Like, what is it about people around me getting sick with cancer? I mean, I know cancer hits everybody, but it was pretty hard not to take it personally. <laughs> Obviously, the world doesn't revolve around me, but still, it's the kinds of things you think. It ended up hitting me very hard. I was self-employed at that point, having worked for a company that went out of business, and, and I ended up forming my own business, doing consulting work for programming and all this stuff. I remember when it hit me, I was in my office and I was listening to the flaming lips and I just lost it, cried my eyes out. And I realized at that moment, anything could happen. Anything could happen. I was 28 years old, out of shape, and I was probably going to get cancer next. That was the thought that went through my head. If this can happen to my dad and then to this healthy, athletic 13-year-old kid, that means I'm going to get cancer next, which means my time is limited and I'm going to run out of it. So I need to do the things I've always wanted to do before I run out of time. 
And that's when I took a moment to ask myself, what do you want to do? I started thinking, well, what have I done? What do I want to make sure I do before I die? What's number one on that bucket list? There was really only one thing. Make a damn movie. Not just talk about it. Not just come up with ideas. Actually make a freaking movie. And that's the end of this episode. That's the backstory of all the things that happened to get to the point where I decided I'm going to make a movie. It wasn't until I realized that I was going to die, and it was probably going to be sooner rather than later, I better do it. I need to do it. I must do this thing. So that's where I'm going to stop for now, because I know this is maybe dragged on a little too far. Next month, I'll be talking about how and why I decided to make The Monster of Phantom Lake in particular, and the things that led me to realize that it was more possible than I thought it was at the time. Because when I originally thought of it, I was like, I'm going to make a movie. I don't know how I'm going to do that. So the next episode, I'll talk about how I figured out how I was going to do it, and then why The Monster of Phantom Lake. This has been the oral history of the Mimiverse, episode one, the long-ass beginning of how it happened. I don't have a good title yet. Someday when this is all broken down into chapters, I'll come up with something better than the long-ass beginning of how it happened. Or I'll just call it that. Thanks for listening to that. Now it's time to revisit Steve Sullivan's Amazing monthly series, Atomic Tales. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales. Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series... Strange Invaders. Tonight, we continue our look into the history of the Science Bureau and their encounters with the unknown in The Buzz of Doom. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. What are you up to, Miss Brock? Those papers don't look like the usual Science Bureau secretarial work. Oh, Miss Rockford, I i mean, Agent 3, I didn't hear you come in. Stealth is one of the reasons the Bureau hired me. It came in handy working overseas during the war. Is that a mission tape you've got in the machine? Yes, Agent 3, I, um... You can call me Rocky. Everyone in the agency does. Okay, and I'm Gigi. My dad tagged me with it. It's quicker than Gloria Gale. So, Gigi, what are you doing? I'm trying to educate myself, catch up on all missions. I want to know everything so I can become an agent one day. Oh? I didn't get this job because my dad's a general, you know? I'm sure you didn't. You're in this mission I'm reviewing right now. You, and Agent 1, and Agent 5, too, I think. Ah, that was very early in the invasion. Back then we had no idea what was going on. We were lucky to get out of it alive. Do we know what's going on now, Agent 3? I mean, Rocky? We've got a better idea of what we're up against, at least. Well, Gigi, I'll let you get back to your studies. Good luck. The Bureau needs more smart agents. You bet. Bye. And thanks, Rocky. Rocky.
I sent for Agent 5 before I went to bed last night, Agent 1. Suzanne Rocky Rockford informed me as we walked from our rustic motel rooms in Simmons, Colorado, toward the small restaurant across the parking lot. He'll be here by midday. Do you really think that's necessary, Agent 3? I replied, tamping down a prickle over the breach of protocol. As lead agent, I'd usually have been the one to call in reinforcements. Three shot me a genial smile and paused in mid-amble. Ray, she said, we've got a trio of mysterious deaths and two disappearances in the last month. And yesterday, a bunch of locals told us that they'd seen things they couldn't explain zooming around in the sky. So unless those three corpses are coincidence... Yeah, it doesn't seem like whatever's going on is related to those mutant fireflies I ran into, I mused, even though their breeding ground in Moret is just across the valley from here. Not unless your giant glow bugs have suddenly gone hostile. Three agreed. Either way, I think a sharpshooter might come in handy. Come on, I'll buy you a quick ham and egg and we'll swap theories on the drive to the site of the first death. I nodded and fell into step beside her. When Rocky Rockford is right about something, this Science Bureau agent is smart enough not to argue. After breakfast, the two of us rolled up to the site of the initial death in our agency Studebaker. We'd talked things over, but the case remained mysterious. The victims, if they were victims, had all been older locals who'd lived alone. A widow, a widower, and a hermit hiding out on his isolated family farm. All the corpses had been strangely swollen, and there had been some disfigurement too. The local authorities couldn't dope out the bloating or the mutilations, though they put down the second as post-mortem wildlife predation. Sightings of UFOs, lights and other unknown objects in the sky, accompanied each death. Because the Bureau had solved the Moret case across the valley a month or so earlier, we'd been called in again. I have to admit that when I joined the United States Science Bureau, I wasn't sure what to think. Professor Tarragon's declaration that strange things had gone on during the war and America would need to guard against future parascientific incursions had seemed a bit out there to me. But funding for the agency was strong, and both the prof and his brainy daughter had sterling reputations in the science community. Besides, this former Marine wasn't about to turn down steady government work in the aftermath of World War II. With so many soldiers home from overseas, good-paying jobs were hard to nab. I'm sure Rocky found the same thing after leaving the intelligence services at the war's end. But what both of us probably assumed would be just a series of Tarragon-inspired snipe hunts were now starting to look not so crazy after all. Who would ever have thought giant lightning bugs might be a thing? Prof Tarragon and his daughter with the PhD, apparently. That being the case, who were Suzanne and I to judge? We started our investigation with the first possible victim, David Ryan. Ryan was a former rancher-turned-hermit, and his place lay on a wooded Colorado hillside above a swampy lake surrounded by tall cattails waving the warm late spring breeze. The forest had retaken what once had been Ryan's pasture land, and young lodgepole pines, spruces, and firs filled the air with their sharp, sweet fragrance. Bit of a dump, Three remarked as we approached Ryan's ramshackle A-frame home. More than a bit, I agreed. A quick but thorough search of the place didn't turn up anything more than the police had found, which was to say, nothing pointing to anything other than natural or accidental death. But they never found the guy's head, Rocky asked. No trace of it, I confirmed. Bear? Mountain lion? Something like that, probably, I agreed, though it's weird for an animal to take just part of a corpse. 
What about your lightning bugs? They eat pollen or nectar. Or so the doc assumes, since we haven't been able to take any specimens. Is that a barn I see through those trees? Three nodded. Looks like. Even more of a mess than the house. Want to check it out? Yeah. We'll give it a quick look and then maybe move on to the other sites. It'd be a shame if we came all this way and these cases turn out to be nothing unusual. We get the same government salary either way, I noted. I guess. If this comes out bust, maybe we could try to spot some of your fireflies before we head back to Washington. She laughed. I always wanted to see a UFO. Sounds like a plan. We hiked through the scrubby young pines toward the dilapidated gray structure. Time and the weather had caved in the building, so that it now looked more like a jumble of pickup sticks than a barn. When we'd come within about 50 yards of the heap, Agent 3 suddenly stopped. What? I asked, stopping too. Don't you hear that? Hear what? That buzzing sound. Ray, look out! Her automatic barked once as I turned at drawing my own gun. A yellow and black wasp the size of a dinner platter came straight from my face. I couldn't bring up my pistol in time to stop the nightmare bug from hitting me. Its stinger looked the size of my little finger. Fortunately, Agent 3's second shot nailed it. The thing flopped to the pine needle-covered ground, bleeding greenish goo as it died. It stank like a garbage heap. Sorry, I missed it the first time. Three apologized. It kind of spooked me. Me too, I replied. Thanks, Suzanne. That's when we noticed that the buzzing sound was growing louder. Fiendish yellow and black insect heads the size of softballs began peeking out of every nook and cranny in the tumble-down barn. Back to the car, I commanded. But the deadly bugs had already swarmed up between us and the Studebaker, cutting off our retreat. Down to the lake, three urged. Wasps don't like water. I hope you're right, I said as we sprinted for the cattails, shooting the closest giant insects out of the sky as we went. The deaths of their fellows seemed to discourage the monsters, but only for an instant. Soon, an angry cloud of at least two dozen had gathered by the barn. They turned and flew full speed toward us. We dashed into the tall reeds, our boots sloshing into the chilly lake water, and crouched down, firing at the forerunners. Our gunshots echoed across the swampland, momentarily overwhelming the drone of giant insect wings. How many clips do you have? I asked. Just one more. You? Same. What then? Dive in and hold our breaths? Unless you have a better idea. Three smiled grimly. At least we know why those bodies were weirdly bloated, stung to death. It's the missing heads I'm more worried about, I admitted, sweat drenching my clean white shirt. Yeah, I... Ray, duck! Before I could, something heavy hit me on the back of the skull. For a moment, my whole world was gunfire, ear-splitting buzzing, and then everything went dark. Secretary Brock. Gigi! Jeepers! Did you have to shout? I nearly jumped out of my skin! What are you doing here? Shouldn't you be typing or filing or something? Yes, Dad. I mean, no, Dad, I mean... What? I mean, I'm on a break, General Brock, sir. Well, break time is over, Gloria Gale. How would it look if someone else found you gold-bricking on the Bureau's time? But I wasn't gold-bricking, Dad. General, I was studying case files. Young lady, when are you going to give up this absurd notion of becoming a science bureau agent and just do your job? But three and seven and a lot of other women are agents. Women, not girls, barely out of school, Gigi. But... You'll have to get back to your daydreaming later. Aren't you supposed to be picking up Dr. Tarragon from the airport? That's not until... Oh, jeez, look at the time. Gotta run, Dad. I mean, General... Wouldn't want to keep the doc waiting. No, you wouldn't. 
and lock those tapes up before you go. Those are classified. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, The Buzz of Doom, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim, who also played Agent 1, Raymond Ray Tyler, and featured Rachel Grubb as Agent 3, Suzanne Rocky Rockford, Gwen Ruhoff as Gloria Gigi Brock, and Mike Cook as General Edward Brick Brock. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. I don't know about you, but I have this feeling that Steve is having a really good time writing these, because I know I'm having fun producing them, and I know that a lot of people are enjoying listening to them. So Steve's got ideas, and I think this thing's going to continue for quite a while. So buckle up, folks. A lot of good stuff coming. I want to thank you for listening to this month's Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I hope you enjoy the new oral history of the Mimiverse and just know that it will continue and it'll go very deep into everything. I want to lay it all out there for everyone to hear as best I can. Contribute to the new Phantom Lake Kids movie we're making, to the holiday special while you still can. And as I always say, be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. Talk to you next month. Bye.